Well, good morning. I'm glad to have you with us this morning. Hey, as we prayed for the nations and for those who specifically are, are persecuted, uh, I was reminded that it's important we pray for our nation as well as we continue to see where we seem to be headed as a nation. And so we learned last week that Jesus said, we are the light of the world. Not that we are to be light, but we are light. And not, <clears throat> excuse me, not to put it on a lampstand, or not to cover it up, but to put it on a lampstand. <clears throat> and one of the ways we do that, excuse me, is <clears throat> that we, we get to vote in this country. And so, <clears throat> wow. <laughs> Sometimes you think I'll just power through, but <clears throat> you don't. <clears throat> Try again. So, um, oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I prefer chocolate, though, actually. <laughs> but thanks. <laughs> uh, when, we, when we vote, we do get to let our light shine. And one of the things that I found really helpful here, maybe you've gotten in this situation where on the big things you can, well, I shouldn't say the big things. On some things, I know exactly how to vote, but then you get to the judges and you're like, uh, you ever been there? Yeah. So one of the things I'm really grateful for, Florida Family Action gives us some direction in terms of the judges. So if you haven't voted yet and you need some direction, I want to encourage you to grab that out in our foyer, or excuse me, out in the courtyard afterwards. And, and not just be informed, but then to vote. All right, join me in Nehemiah, actually chapter 8. We're not going backwards. We're going to head to 13. But to understand Nehemiah 13, the final chapter in this book, we need to start in Nehemiah 8 quickly this morning. Because by chapter 7, the walls and the gates have been rebuilt and restored. And chapter 8 turns now to a restoring of the people. And it begins with the public reading of the scriptures. And the public reading of the scriptures has a tremendous impact on the people as they hear it. It moves them to tears, conviction. And the leaders say, oh, don't cry yet. This is a holy day. This is actually Rosh Hashanah. This is the beginning of the Jewish New Year, this is a holy day, a day of celebration, a day to remember. So they literally stopped them in their tears and said, no, take the afternoon off and feast. And then the next day, they read the scriptures again and they realized, whoa, in this month, we're supposed to spend seven days in a tent remembering when the people lived in the wilderness in a tent. And so they prepare themselves and they spend, for the first time in generations, seven days remembering their God is the God who delivers and leads and provides and protects. And then later in the month, after that, they bring the people together again and they say, now, now it's time to weep. And they take them through, in chapter 9, a thousand-year history of how God had given and given and given and given. And the people had been hard-hearted and stiff-necked and rebelled and refused to listen. But God had been great in compassion and had not forsaken them. 
And that reading of a thousand-year history causes them to confess to the Lord their own sin, which prompts, prompts them then in chapter 10 to put in writing a new promise. Eighty-four leaders sign on behalf of more than 40,000 people, here's what we're going to do because of God's mercy. We're going to walk in his commandments. We're not going to intermarry with foreigners, not because it's a race issue, because it's a faith issue. We're going to keep the Sabbath, and we're going to keep the Sabbath year and forgive debts. And we're going to generously, all of us, contribute to the temple worship. And they sign. That's what we do. And chapter 11, it gets even better. In chapter 12, they then show how each person is actually living according to what is best for the purposes of God. Some in Jerusalem, some not in Jerusalem. And how each are serving in a matter that serves the purposes of God. Some on a maintenance team, some on the worship team, some on the leading team. They're all serving. It's like so good that you think, Man, one more chapter, how much better could it get? And so, let's take a peek into how much better it could get. Chapter 13, verse 10, it says, I discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. So that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. Drop down to verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wines, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem when? On the Sabbath day. What are you discovering? <laughs> They're doing the things they said they wouldn't. Verse 23, in those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. The very people that said they wouldn't marry. To this degree, verse 24, for their children half spoke in the language of Ashdod and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah. Whew, that's a long stray. But the language of his own people. So Daxley chapter 13 doesn't find it getting better. It's like, this is, it'd been better if, if Nehemiah was 12 chapters long instead of 13 chapters long. It, it's kind of like the Jaguars. <laughs> if we could play 54 minute games, we'd be six and two. It's that last six minutes. It's like Nehemiah 13, crash and burn. Did I do them for today now? I hope not. So here's what I want us to, to answer this morning. Why do those who walked with God stop walking? Because that's what's happening here. Why do those who walked with God and were sincere in it and actually doing it, and then they stop, they broke all their promises? They were walking and they stopped walking. It's a question some of you have asked yourself. Maybe because a spouse or a child or a sibling or a parent or yourself, you walked with God and then you stopped. 
Now, you may be thinking you stopped and it's been years of stopping. Here's how I think this passage will help all of us. All of us who have walked with God have stopped. You understand that? Like this weekend, at one point, you, you stopped, probably. You were walking and you stopped. And maybe it only lasted for five minutes. But you blew up and then you came back. Some it lasts a week. And you kind of just overwhelm with conviction. And some it just keeps lasting a long time. The, it never gets started again. Next week we'll look at how to get started again. This week, what causes us to stop? So we're going to look at the text, what calls them to stop. We're going to run through it pretty quickly. You're going to think, wow, we're done with the outline already? Yeah, with what happened then, we're going to come back and go, so what do we do with that? But we're going to look at them first, all right? So what calls them to stop? We're going to look at chapter 13, verse 4, 5, and 6 most closely. Now prior to this, Eliashib, the priest, that's a key figure here. He is the one who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God. So he is a priest who is serving the temple worship and in charge. It says, Elijah, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So all that stuff was in the room. But during all this time, Nehemiah speaking now, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king. And what we discover in the rest of the chapter is when he came back, he found them who had been walking with God, not walking. What happened? Well, we just read it. You may go, uh, I missed it. <laughs> so let me unpack it for you. What happened? First, spiritual authority and accountability, specifically in the person of Nehemiah, authority and accountability are no longer what? They're no longer present. They've gone absent. That's where it starts. Nehemiah leaves. When he leaves, they're walking. When he's gone, they stop walking. Said in verse 6, during this time, I was not in Jerusalem. So, authority and accountability, absent. Second, a first compromise is made. In other words, rarely do we go from walking to just immediate, like obvious, they're not walking with God anyway. There's a first compromise. What was it in the text? What was the first compromise? Eliashib, a priest, has become related to Tobiah. How would that happen? Marriage. Marriage the only, is the only way that that would happen. And you may go, I don't, I don't understand. What's the point? Well, 
back in chapter 4, verse 3, that we learn Tobiah, who has been a constant enemy of Nehemiah, is a foreigner. He's an Ammonite. And so what's happened? Someone in Eliashib's house made a compromise and intermarried in a relationship they had no business being married First compromise. It wasn't Eliashib's compromise. It was distant. We'll talk about that in a moment. But a first compromise is made, which leads then to a personal desire because of this new now relationship between Tobiah and Eliashib, a personal desire takes precedence over a previous desire to please God. And again, you may go, is that in the text? Absolutely. There had been a previous desire to please God, evidenced by the fact that he had been appointed into this role of overseeing what was going on in the house of God. So he had clearly been a man who had walked with God and had the respect and the confidence of those who appointed him. That was a previous desire. What was the now personal desire? Eliashib, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him where formerly they put the grain offerings and everything else stored for temple worship. So that desire to oversee that which would please God actually gets moved out. And we don't know what the desire is. Why would he do this for Tobiah? It doesn't tell us. It just tells us that being related to him, he now wants to do something for him that he would have never done before. Allowed a foreigner to have access, not just access, but residence in the house of God. So do you see? There's some desire here that causes him to do something he would have never done before. And that desire gives birth in this action. Spaces and resources previously reserved for God become applied to other desires and purposes. You follow? With a new desire... To do something that would benefit him versus that which would please the Lord. He takes spaces that were once reserved for the Lord and he uses them for his own personal purposes. And by space and resources, space I simply mean that area. It was a large room. And he cleans it out, but he doesn't just create a vacuum. He fills it, we'll come back to this, think about it. He fills it with other stuff to serve himself versus please the Lord. Are you beginning to see how they walked away? He prepared a large room for him where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes, grain, wine, oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, the eight preachers, and the contributions for the priest. 
All that stuff gets cleaned out. Where is it? It's gone. All that had been used to foster relationship with God, they're now absent. Space gets repurposed and the practices now and the people intended to a foster relationship with God, they no longer have a place in their life because they got moved out. Maybe verse 10 will make even more sense to you now. I discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. Why weren't they given to them? Because they had no longer been collected because there was no longer a place to keep them. So that the Levites and the singers, what'd they do? They went home. Because there was no supply for them to do what they were intended to do. And what were they intended to do? Foster love for God. Remember the mercy of God. Remember how he has not forsaken you. Singing praise to God. All that was intended to foster is gone. And watch. Once those elements, the people and practices intended to foster desire for God are gone, what happens to desire? It's gone with it then, right? That which was there, it's gone. And finally, living for God becomes part of our past. We remember it, but we don't do it any longer because it's no longer desirable. Because the things that were intended to foster desire, absent. Now you may think, oh, we're done. <laughs> Couple questions first. <laughs> Do you see yourself in that text? Can you see your journey? Some of you, I think, will, can very quickly go, oh, I can see it precisely. A couple weeks ago, I shared it with staff, just even faster than I just shared it with you. I read the verses and said, here's the six steps that I see happening because I wanted to run it by them. Go, does this make sense? And immediately there was a number who went, oh, that, that's actually my story. A guy who said, oh, I can see. I went off to college. Let me just run through it. I went off to college. And when I left for college, authority and accountability became absent in my life. I got to college with that accountability gone. I made my first small compromises. Some of you think, I'm talking about you right now. <laughs> that, fir that first compromise led to then a new desire, personal desires. That replaced a previous desire to please the Lord. And those personal desires led to what? 
a replacing of space and resources with new things that fed my desire. And in replacing those things, the things that had once fostered love for God in my life were absent. There was no minutes for them anymore, no space for them in my life. And when there was no space in, in my life for them, then my desire ceased. And it lasted for about 15 years in their life. It's amazing how those few verses are just almost a blueprint for how you and I are all prone to stop. Again, we're not thinking, oh, well, who, who here has stopped for 15 years? That's part. But when you stop for an hour or a day or a week or a month or a year, it's right there. Accountability becomes absent. <clears throat> First compromise takes place. New desires begin to roll. Those desires cause old things to be replaced with new practices that feed those desires. With the old practices gone, desire fades until a walk is simply a past memory. <clears throat> Could that happen to us now? 100%. So this is maybe, out of what seemingly nowhere, a phenomenal passage for all of us. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Why am I taking us here? <clears throat> because we tend to see things after they come out of us. But the change happened out of sight in our heart before that takes place. That's why my mind went to this verse. Something happened in Eliashib's life heart first that then began to be revealed in action and his actions ended up impacting a whole people. But it starts with the heart and then it's what's in the heart that flows out. This is why Jesus said to the religious people of his day, you guys are all consumed about what you put in you. Stop it. You need to be concerned about what comes out of you because it's what comes out of you that is the true revealer of what's in you. Guard, watch over your heart. So I ask myself, and this is where I'm going to give you some points that don't have fill in the blanks, but you might need to flip it over if you're taking notes. How do we watch over our heart with all diligence based on what we see happen to them and to us in Nehemiah 13. First, <clears throat> I invite spiritual authority and accountability 
into my life. If I'm going to watch over your heart, I recognize I need help watching over it. I recognize I can easily deceive myself. That there are some things in my life that I will not see, but that others can see for me. Invite authority and accountability into your life. I've made an emphasis a number of times in recent weeks through Nehemiah since we started in chapter 8, the value of being a member of a local church because it places you under a spiritual authority. Elders who will give an account for your soul. So that's an authority level and an accountability level. Who knows you? And who has, key word here, who has invited you? Or excuse me. Who have you invited in to ask you heart questions, priority questions, decision questions? Don't make people kick the door down in your life. There are precious few people, thankfully, who love to confront. (laughs) And accountability at times is a confrontational moment, but it won't feel nearly that way and awful and negative if it's a, hey, you don't need to kick the door down. Let me open it. You're invited in. Is there anything that you see in my life, in my relationships, in my reactions, in my priorities that calls you to go, is love for God and walking with God still first in your life? Anybody? That you could literally right now write a name down that says, yeah, here, this is my person. You may be thinking, can it be my spouse? Yes, it can be your spouse. Jackie will say some things to me that I'm like, seriously? And there's everything in me that wants to go, come on. But I have to remember, she has a a view into my life that I do not have. So yes, it absolutely can be. Do not uh, reject or neglect the gift of God of a spouse who can uh, walk with you. It may need to be another person beyond your spouse. Sometimes a man needs another man, and sometimes a woman needs another woman who can speak into their lives in a way that a spouse wouldn't. I hope we'll take the step that you'll ask yourself the real question, have I invited that into my life? And if not, who would I invite invite in? Second, To confront any, what I would put, quote, small or distant, not because they are, but because that's why we allow them to happen. Because they seem small or distant compromises in your life. 
Let's talk small first. Use an example from this weekend. An individual shared with me an apology of an exaggeration. It wasn't a big deal. It wasn't about anything major. But in response to Thursday night said, I want to apologize for an exaggeration. That's a small thing that can lead to lying when things really matter. So I want to apologize for an exaggeration. You may think, wow, really? Yeah, those are the small compromises. They seem small. It's just one drink. It's a small compromise, maybe. That may be a small compromise that leads to something much more destructive in your life. Small compromises get ignored because maybe you've said this. I know it's wrong. It's just not that big a deal. It's really not, it doesn't involve that much money. It's just a it's just small amount. Or distant. What was really profound to me from this text was that the first compromise was not by Eliashib, it was by someone in his family, but it became the catalyst for his compromise. And it took me to many places where I have seen the compromise of a spouse being unfaithful become the cause for then the other spouse to say, well, I'll be unfaithful as well. Or the compromise that happens in a child or a teenager who sees a dad or a mom who say they walk with the Lord, but then make a compromise and they go, well, they do it. It's the devastation of a, of a pastor who morally fails in one way or another. And all those who were a part of that congregation have now a huge temptation to make compromises themselves because the person they had looked to had made compromises. That's, that's what I mean by distant. And we can excuse it. It's, it's this. Well, they wronged me, so I have a right to think these evil thoughts. They've wronged me. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop attending. The compromise of another becomes the platform, the catalyst for your compromise. That's what happened in the text. And some of us stop walking with God. And, and it's not another person's fault. But we have justified it and blamed them because they stopped walking with God. See, I would, I would want to encourage you, friends. Do not allow the decisions of others to become the foundation or the catalyst or the excuse for you making poor spiritual decisions yourself. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? If you're a member, this is an exact, this was a verse that we read a couple of weeks ago at our members meeting of why we were taking action 
with what we were doing with an individual who was living in clear disobedience to the scriptures. The warning is that we must address an individual like that because leaven, even if it's one person among a thousand, a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. Third, we guard our heart by putting to death personal desires before they conceive sinful actions. Yes, let me ex- give you a moment to write it down, and then I'll explain from the scriptures what this means. To put to death personal desires before they conceive sinful actions. Here's the power of the gospel. Before Christ, I was a slave to my desires. When I placed faith in Christ, the penalty for my sin was paid and the power of sin to enslave me was broken. Therefore, I no longer have any selfish, sinful desires. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you missed it, he said, Congratulations. That is not the truth. What I said the first two points about who I was before Christ and the power of the gospel to break my enslavement to sin is absolutely true. The next statement was not true. I absolutely still do as you do. Congratulations. (laughs) Sinful, evil, wicked desires, right? Yes. They have not been removed. Slavery to them has been removed. So we still have to deal with them. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So if it's not that way, how's it coming? This way. Each man is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, watch. Uh, I always use New American Standard, and it says lust here, and that's a legitimate translation. The problem is when you think lust, you immediately think sinful, sexual sin. But it's bigger here. The word here is beyond sexual sin. It's when they are carried away and enticed by his own desires, passions, whether it's for sex, immoral, or whether it's for fame, or whether it's for riches. Yeah, it's desire. What what happens? Tempted when I'm carried away and enticed by those desires, sinful, wicked evil that are still present. And then when lust, when desire has conceived, see, if you give it time, what will it do? It'll make babies. Seriously, if you give your desire time, 
It will produce babies. It'll produce action. And it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So that's what happens in me. I'm free from slavery to sin. I'm free from the penalty of sin. But the power of desire is still alive and active in me. And it's at the heart level where I begin my end to walking with God. It's revealed at an action level, but it begins at a heart level. And the heart level is desire for God gets replaced with these other desires. And when those desires are not addressed, they give birth to things that will lead to sin. And sin will always bring death, brokenness. So what do we do? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, for me to continue to to guard my heart, I need to recognize that I am constantly going to have to put to death desires that are not pleasing to the Lord. They're going to have to put them to death before they give birth to sin. See, you can do that. It's that we don't want to. It's that we feed those desires. It's that we give those desires a body to express themselves that sin comes forth. The desires are still part of who we are. By God's grace and the sanctifying work of God, those desires are changing and becoming more like Christ, but there's still evil, selfish, wicked ones present that I need to learn to put to death, to crucify before they give birth. The word crucify, as I was reflecting on this passage, made me think of this. Why did the people who crucified Jesus crucify him? Why did they kill him? If you've never really why why they kill Jesus? And ultimately, they killed Jesus. They had him crucified because they perceived he was going to be detrimental to their agenda. And the way they saw Jesus as detrimental to what I want and therefore crucify him, watch, this may sound confusing at first, is the way I need to see my personal desires. The way they saw Jesus. That they, those personal desires, though they promise me good, <laughs> they are detrimental to my life. My personal, selfish, wicked, evil, lustful desires will ruin my marriage and will harm my family and will impact negatively the church. It'll scar my future. If I see it clearly like that, now again, that may seem weird. Am I saying Jesus does those things? No, I'm saying they crucified him because he represented opposition to what they wanted. And actually, I'll never crucify my desires until I begin to go, oh, they are truly in opposition to what is best for me. Therefore, 
I need to put them to death. Because if I don't, they're going to make babies. I cannot give them a body, a mouth, a mind, eyes, hands, and feet to express themselves. But to deny them a body by crucifying, that's how we crucify them. Fourth, give sufficient space and energy. If I'm going to guard my heart, watch over it with diligence. There needs to be sufficient space and energy for worship, reading, and relationships. That, and just picture somebody getting a fire going, fanning the flame of your desire for God. <sighs> Giving it oxygen. So that a, a dying ember... Because that's what sometimes our walk with God is like. It's like a dying ember and it needs, it needs oxygen of worship, word, and relationships. Apart from them, what happens to that ember? It just continues to fade. It's exactly what happened in Nehemiah 13. They didn't give space and resources to things that would fan the flame of their desire for God, and the ember went out. And it was just a past. It flows from the heart. And so the language that I regrettably hear so much is, yeah, I haven't been reading my Bible. No, no, we've been really busy. Haven't, haven't been to church. You know, it's football season. We travel a lot. It's the fall. We have a place we love to go. And so we haven't been involved. No, I haven't really been reading the scriptures. And when we go away, we don't really have people in this place where we vacation. We don't have relationships. And I'm just not feeling it. Man, I'm not surprised. Why would you feel it? <laughs> There's been no space, no resources given to bring oxygen to the ember of your faith. And so it, our faith is always either being given oxygen to burn brighter or being robbed oxygen and growing dimmer. And what's the oxygen? Worship, the word, and relationships with other folks. This is, many of you know this verse not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the manner of some, the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All right, would you bow with me? I imagine at some point you saw yourself in the mirror of the scriptures this morning. I want to encourage you not just to be a hearer of the word only, 
but a doer. So whatever the Lord showed you about you, would you respond to him? Whether was it about accountability, about small compromise, about feeding new desires, about the absence of oxygen in your own faith. Lord, thank you for giving us the resources and the wisdom we need to guard our heart with diligence so that that which would flow from it would be your life, your love, your joy, your truth. And Lord, when anything else comes out of my heart, if it's not love, joy, truth, peace, then Lord, I know I need to to look, watch, and realize being penetrated by something other than you. So would you grow us in our diligence and our faithfulness to watch over and to watch over one another to the praise of your glory in Christ's name. Amen.